0: We are memorizing a verse in the book of Luke, two verses actually in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. We have another week, and and many of us probably already know this verse. In fact, we were watching Charlie Brown's Christmas last night. And and when, uh, I believe it's Linus who starts to recite the verse, Bailey said, Dad, that's our verse. And I said, yes it is. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Luke 2, verses 10 through 12. A very appropriate verse to be memorizing together as a congregation as we walk towards Christmas Day and celebrating the birth of our Savior. And we have been looking at our Advent series, Behold Our Joy Wrapped in Glory. Reminding ourselves that Jesus is a great source of joy for us. And there's a cause for celebration that Christ has been born. The greatness of God, born among man, wrapped in the glory of God and in the flesh of man to save humanity. What a thing for us to celebrate together as a congregation. Week one, we looked at the promise of a child that would be John the Baptist. Week two, we looked at God coming through on that promise in the birth of John the Baptist. And today, we will look at a promise that was given regarding the Messiah. And next week, as we close out our series, Pastor Reed will look at the birth of, of Jesus. You know this time of year it's interesting I wonder if any of you have had the opportunity to go to a Christmas concert yet this time of year. It seems that tis the season for Christmas concerts and we were at one uh, this past week at one of the local middle schools and it occurred to me as I was sitting there in between sets the curtain would close and what occurred to me is that when the curtain closed or when the curtain was closed There was something that was going on behind the curtain that I was not able to see. And what I love about God's word and what I love about the truth of God's word and what it is, is it it works like someone's opening the curtain and giving us sight into the very work of God as he works out his covenant promises to man. It's a wonderful thing. And there's a passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I just want you to listen. This is a beautiful reminder that God gives us insight into his work through his word. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Isn't that beautiful? We are seeing this happening before our very eyes as we walk through this series together. And today, our text opens the curtains of the infancy narrative. And we are going to explore what is a third primary theme in this narrative. We've already seen two. We're going to look at a third today. And we want to answer a question Something that we learn from Mary's response when she's given this great news of God at work in her life. And the question is this. What is our proper response when we realize the work of God in our lives? What is our proper response when we realize the work of God in our lives? If you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26, looking at verses 26 to 38 to start this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And let's pray. Father God, as we come together as a congregation this morning to study your word, we pray that you would unfetter our minds, that you would free us from distractions. Lord, I confess this morning that there are many in my mind, and Father, I just pray now that you would help us to focus in on what you have for us in your word. Lord, we never come to your word without the belief that you intend to use it to change us, and that's the hope that we surround your word with this morning, that we will not leave here unchanged, but that you'll use the truth of this word, through the power of your spirit working in our hearts and minds to help us leave here a changed people, a grateful people, a loving people, a hopeful people, a people rejoicing. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel... Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The context here is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel has been busy in this season. He's already confronted Zechariah in the temple. And now he's moving on, is sent by God to a little town in Galilee called Nazareth. He's coming to a humble virgin, one who would have been considered a commoner among men and women. Not a woman who was high and exalted in the eyes of the world, but one who even would have been considered lowly. Luke is going to repeat three times in this narrative the reality of Mary's virginity. Two times in verse 27, then once again further down in verse 34. And church, it's important that we recognize that the virgin birth of Jesus is a major part of the infancy narratives. A major part. The vine dresser is seeking the perfect soil in which to plant his seed. And it's not that Mary was sinless in order to somehow merit her selection, but it's simply that she was God's chosen. God's chosen woman, God's chosen womb. And an even more beautiful reality is that the Savior of the world will come from the womb of one who's been created in the image of God. Flesh and blood begets flesh and blood. It reminds us of the reality that Jesus can relate and be acquainted with our grief and our pain because in so many ways... He is just like us. And if we take Mary's virginity out of the infancy narratives, I believe it should be considered as a robbery of the power of God in the birth of Jesus Christ, in the conception of Jesus Christ. Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin, period, no debate. And that's where we stand as a church. Verse 27 indicates that not only is Mary a virgin, but that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who happens to be from the line of David. Betrothal was a deep commitment in that time. It it, it was almost equal to marriage, but not quite. In fact, if somebody wanted to break off a betrothal in those days, it required divorce papers. So this was a very committed relationship. And it's interesting in this text today to compare the encounter that Zechariah has with Gabriel to Mary's encounter. When Zechariah meets Gabriel, there's no acknowledgement that Zechariah is favored among men. Is there? We don't see that with him. But with Mary, look at verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. O favored one. The Lord is with you. And this approach from Gabriel, the fact that he's just coming to Mary, seemingly in the middle of her regular day-to-day goings, it strikes fear into her heart. She's troubled. Perhaps as one of us would be troubled if all of a sudden you went home today and waiting at your house was the Queen of England. Or President Trump. Whichever one you would prefer. Either one. Whichever one would excite you the most. (laughs) You might be fearful. I would be fearful. You might ask this question, Why me? What have I done? (laughs) This could be some of the same emotions that Mary was experiencing. She's trying to discern what Gabriel's intentions might be in this. Did I do something wrong? Why is this angel visiting me? And Gabriel continues with the same response he used with Zechariah to calm his anxiety. Look at what he says. Do not be afraid. And once again, he reminds her of the tone of his visit. It's good news. Mary has found favor with God. And, and friends, it's important here to pause and say this. And there's a few times today we want to differentiate between what the Catholic Church teaches regarding Mary and what the Protestant Church teaches regarding Mary this is not to say that Mary was a source of grace but this is to say that she was a recipient of God's grace that's an important distinction between the catholic and protestant church a catholic church identifies Mary as a source of grace misreading the intention of the original language you hear the term a lot hail mary full of grace And the word that's used here is clear that Mary was not a source of grace, but yet she was actually the recipient of a grace gift from God. God's favor had come to rest upon Mary. And the favor of God would manifest itself in three distinct ways in Mary's life. Take a look at verse 31. There's three distinct ways that God's favor was going to manifest itself in Mary's life. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Because Mary had found favor with God, this is what would happen to her. First, she would conceive in her womb. Then, she would bear a son. And finally, she would give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Just as John was named by God through Gabriel, so too would Jesus' name be given by God, delivered to Mary through the angel Gabriel. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And just as Zechariah's life was changed in an instant, all of his security and all of the comforts of his life laying shattered before him as he considered what it was going to look like to be inviting a newborn baby into his life at such an old age, Mary's life too would be changed forever by the words she was given by this angel. Friends, God's words, God's word has the power to change our lives In an instant. For those of us who sit here today who enjoy a relationship with God, we know this to be true. One day we were blind and the next day we saw. In an instant, the word of God changed our lives dramatically. And this is how powerful his word is. And so in verse 31, we find the answer to this question. What will happen to Mary because she's found favor with God? And there were three things that were going to happen to her. Three actions. And then in verses 32 and 33, we find the answer to another question. Who will this child be? Who is this child that is going to be born unto Mary? And Gabriel is going to announce five realities regarding this child whose name was Jesus. He begins in verse 32, with the same pronouncement he made regarding Zechariah's son all the way back in, in Luke, uh, verse 15. Remember what he said about Zachariah's son, about John the Baptist? He said, for he will be great before the Lord. He said that regarding John the Baptist, that he would be great. Here, Gabriel qualifies the greatness of Jesus by attaching a title to it. Jesus' greatness has a name, and His name is the Son of the Most High. And what we're going to find is that Jesus is really given four different identifiers in this part of the infancy narratives. In verse 31, He's called Jesus. In verse 32, He's called Son of the Most High. Then in verse 35, He's given the name Holy and Son of God. Four different identifiers for Jesus in this text what it's saying church is that Jesus was different than other children something was unique about him Gabriel and the gospel writer Luke want us to be aware from the beginning of the unique character of Jesus so first he is great second he is son of the most high and then look at number three he will receive a throne And I love the wording that Gabriel uses here. It's reflected in Luke's gospel. Look at the second part of verse 32. The second part of verse 32. It says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David. Did you see what was happening there? That phrasing? Who does the throne belong to in that phrasing? Who does the throne belong to? God. Who's giving the throne? God. It's His throne. It's always been His throne. It doesn't matter who's currently sitting on it or even if it's occupied. The throne belongs to God and it's Him to give to whom He pleases. And He's going to give it to Jesus. And we have said that one of the major themes throughout the infancy narratives is the sovereignty of God. God is in control. And now we see that reality here in full display. It's God's throne to give He can give it to whom He wants. He's giving it to Jesus. He will be great. He will be the Son of the Most High, given the throne of His Father, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And now look at verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Forever. His reign will be forever, and then finally His kingdom will have no end five realities regarding who this child would be the throne of his father the house of his father the kingdom of his father all belong to Jesus Emmanuel God with us son of the most high church it all belongs to him and this in this reality we see the second theme which we covered last week god is keeping his promises To his people. And it's interesting if you want to compare something neat. Look at Mary's response compared to Zechariah's response. They're not very different. Take a look at verse 34. How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And remember in Luke chapter 1 verse 18. Zechariah responds to the angel. How shall I know this? Very similar responses. Zechariah and Elizabeth were old. Mary was a virgin. None of this made any sense to any of them. All of this was incredibly supernatural and miraculous in their minds. And this is where we begin, church, to wade into the third theme in the infancy narrative. And the third theme is this. The Spirit is at work. God is in control. God is keeping His promises And all throughout Luke chapter 1 and 2, all throughout the infancy narratives as they're unpacked in Matthew, what we see is that the Spirit is at work. And the Spirit's work, friends, church, it's a reminder that God's ways are not like our ways. Yes? Isn't that amazing? When the Spirit works, we can see visibly and clearly that God does not operate in the way that we operate it's very very different old people conceive and have children virgins conceive and have children his ways are not like our ways his ways are extraordinary and as he works he allows us to see his ways and our response friends should be to stand in wonder stand in wonder Gabriel is kind enough here to explain to Mary exactly what's going to happen to her. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, put yourself in Mary's shoes. If you're a virgin and you are told this, isn't it kind for the angel, think about the implications of it, to stay and to tell Mary exactly how this is going to happen. First, he says the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. Then he says the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. And finally, she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And look at the end of verse 35. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Then Gabriel moves to explain that Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, has also miraculously conceived a son. And in verse 37, he concludes with a remarkably powerful and revealing statement of truth. It's a reminder for us, church. It's a truth that we should cherish and take to heart. The Spirit is at work. His ways are not like our ways. In verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God nothing and and isn't this testimony of that very truth isn't the conception of elizabeth testimony of that isn't the conception of the virgin mary testimony of that very verse nothing shall be impossible with god and i ask this question how would our lives look how would my life look if we truly lived like we believed that verse. What impossible things is God calling you to? What are the impossibilities that the Lord wants to accomplish in your life? Church, living free of fear of what might happen or what could happen is a great way to see the impossibilities of what is happening by the power of God In our daily lives. Oftentimes, I don't know if this is true for you, church, but fear clouds my ability to see what God is doing. And it's only when He gives me the strength to set that fear aside that I can truly see the miraculous and impossible ways of how He's working in our lives. Six long years of waiting to bring these children home, and all of a sudden, the week before Christmas, a phone call. Not what I was expecting. Nothing is impossible with God. We shouldn't be surprised when things in our life don't go as we planned or as we have schemed. When the Spirit's at work in our lives, truly at work, the fruit of His work uh, in our lives is our obedience. Impossible things happen. We cannot plan for impossibilities. We we don't often operate in the impossible. We don't even many times consider the impossible. But with God, this is where he thrives, church. This is why he is who he is. He is the God of the impossible. Mary grabs hold of this statement. Isn't it amazing? She is not like Zechariah. There is no doubting here. She grabs hold of this statement. She is not wrestling with the doubt that plagued Zachariah. If this is what God has in store for her life, she knows that He is powerful enough to accomplish it. Her response is teaching us what our response should be as well. Take a look at verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let it be unto me according to your word. Imagine the impossibilities going through Mary's mind. The smallest of which may have been, how am I going to explain this to my husband? Joseph! I was out today and an angel came to me and he told me that The Spirit was going to come upon me and the glory of the Lord was going to overshadow me and I'm going to conceive. It doesn't work that way, Mary. I mean, imagine. Imagine the conversation. Uh, What must have been going through her mind? How are their lives going to change? All of the unknowns, all of the gossip, they would have to deal with it. Mary and Joseph were only betrothed. She's pregnant. Something's going on. The potential misunderstanding of the occasion was enormous and had enormous implications in her community. In the world's eyes, this is crazy and impossible. But in God's eyes, this is just who He is and how He operates. With all this excitement, it was time for Mary to celebrate and she had the perfect person in mind with whom to celebrate this with. Look at verses 39 to 45. Verses 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Carrying on the theme of the Spirit being at work, once again, we see this so clearly. In this portion of the text, the Holy Spirit coming upon Elizabeth here. His work is all over this narrative. And for Mary, instead of allowing the what-ifs to consume her, Mary's attitude and her posture is one of gratitude and rejoicing. It would appear to some in her community that Mary had committed adultery. That's what it would look like. The penalty for which would have been death. But she knew the reality. This is not where her mind is. Just as promised, the conception of these two little boys would be cause for great rejoicing. And isn't it amazing? The first time these two little guys are together, still in their mother's womb, the promise of great rejoicing is seen right in the text by what happens. John leaps for joy. In his mother's womb. It's so beautiful. The loud cry that burst from Elizabeth's lips is reminiscent of how we might respond when someone who we dearly love but we haven't seen in years surprises us at our doorstep. Now go home today from church and imagine that one of your dearest friends you haven't seen in years was surprising you later this afternoon. How would you respond? How excited would you be? This is the excitement of Elizabeth. She cannot contain her joy and excitement. Celebration bursts forth. Her words form a little poem. Look at verse 42. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth's proclamation is affirming that Mary has been set apart from other women who might also be pregnant. It also affirms that the little one who's developing in Mary's womb is set apart from others who would be born at the same time. This baby is different than other babies who are also going to be born on the same day. Did it ever occur to you that that was a reality? On that same day, thousands of other babies were born, but only one was holy and set apart. And what Elizabeth recognizes is that Mary's conception, labor, delivery are all incredibly unique and incredibly special. Elizabeth also recognizes her position in the presence of Mary. There's no jealousy here. There's no resentment that Elizabeth, the one who was considered by the public and by the people spiritual, the wife of a priest, that she wasn't chosen to carry the Messiah. But his forerunner, there's no resentment, there's no jealousy. It's a posture of humility. Look at verses 43 and 44. Why is this granted to me? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And there's echoes of Psalm 110, verse 1 in our minds. The Lord says to my Lord, sit. At my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Elizabeth's excitement gives way to a blessing from Mary. It's one of great encouragement. I love this verse. Verse 45. Blessed is she who believed. Difference between Zechariah's response and Mary's response. Very clear here. Zechariah's response clouded by doubt and then his consequence. Mary's response clouded not clouded but celebrated by belief her belief she believed that there would be a fulfillment blessed is she who believed it's not a jab at Zechariah who doubted but we can't help but see the contrast here blessed is she who believed that god would keep his promises blessed be the one who trusted that god would perform that which he said he would do church faith is rewarded Faith is rewarded. God rewards faith. Real faith produces obedience. Obedience generates love. And true love gives way to a people who lay down their lives for each other in order to magnify the name of the Lord. But it begins with faith, belief we've explored this reality in the last few months when we were going through the book of john john chapter 6 verses 28 and 29 they said to jesus what must we do to be doing the works of god jesus answered them look at how he says this don't miss this this is the work of god that you believe in him who he has sent And if we do believe, then we give thanks to God because we cannot miss in this text that even our ability to believe is a work of God. This is the work of God. And what follows in verses 46 to 56 of our text back in Luke 1 is evidence that Mary's belief was real. Her belief produces worship. And her desire is not to magnify herself, for some choice that she made, but to magnify her Lord for the reality that He chose her as the vessel that would carry the Savior of the world. Mary's heart, her mind, her soul are set on the Lord and shall now burst forth in worship. And here is Mary's example to us, church. Mary's example to us when she realizes the work of God in her life. First, she recognizes the reality of the work Then she celebrates it with Elizabeth, and now she breaks forth in a song of gratitude, worshiping God. Look at verses 46 to 56, known as the Magnificat for the opening line here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to our home. It would have been a four day journey for Mary to go and see her cousin, Elizabeth, four days. And as she traveled, there would have been much on her mind, and perhaps it was during her journey to see Elizabeth that she actually composed this song. And if you want to do a little bit of extra homework this week, if you go to, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you compare the two songs, there's beautiful comparisons. In fact, that reference is in your notes. You can circle it and go visit that this week sometime and see the comparison. But Hannah's response to God's work in her life more focuses on how God overcame her enemies, while Mary's song emphasizes God's tender mercies. And she begins her song by first elevating the Lord and then expressing the source of her joy. Look at verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And we can see as we look through Mary's song, almost in every line where the Old Testament, the ancient hymnal of the Israelites is informing her words. Look at Psalm one hundred one, 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And what I love about how Mary begins her song, apart from magnifying the Lord, is that she recognizes that she has a great need for a savior my god my savior mary is not without sin friends we we said this earlier but it's an important point of reference that identifies another difference between the catholic church's understanding of mary and the protestant church's understanding of mary in the catholic tradition mary is without sin she's pure she's blameless But if that is the case, then why in the second line of her song does she acknowledge the need of a Savior? You see, there's something very beautiful going on here, church, and this is the beauty of the conception. The beauty is that the Lord found Mary in her humble estate and that God would choose one who was humbled by the wages of sin to carry His perfect child who would be born free of sin so that He might save those who were held captive by sin. That's the beauty of what's happening here. Mary's not sinless. She's like the rest of her people. She was sick and in great need of a Savior. Her words in verse 48 indicate her surprise that Elizabeth, who was much older and well-respected among women, would call her blessed. She was humble. It brought Mary's mind to the enormity of what was happening to her from now on. All generations will call me blessed. And not because of what she had done, but look at verse 49. Why would they call her blessed? She qualifies it in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. It wasn't the work of Mary that earned her the title of blessed, but it was what God had done in her and through her and was doing in and through her. Look at what she does in the last line there in verse 49. And His name, and holy is His name. And holy is His name. Remember what Gabriel said one of the names of Jesus would be in verse 35? Holy, the Son of God. But Mary's talking about God here in this song. The Son and the Father share a name that is only worthy of God. Holy, holy. and in some miraculous way i don't even begin to ask me how to describe this i can't but in some miraculous way the nature of the one who overshadowed mary and caused her conception was in some inconceivable way also present in her womb jesus fully god fully man it's amazing And the mercy that has been displayed to Mary is also available for all who fear Him. Those who because of their belief in His power and might stand in awe and wonder. And you remember Zechariah's song from last week. He talked about a horn of salvation. And somebody mentioned to me after the service, it reminded them of the Calvary coming. The Lord, He's providing salvation. It's a symbol of power. And Zechariah's horn of salvation in Mary's song gives way in verse 51 to the arm of strength. Look at verse 51. The proud would be scattered. The arm of strength, the strength of salvation, yet proud would be scattered. Those who in their heart had no need for a Savior would be brought down from their empires and thrones. And friends, isn't it true that, that the thrones of the proud are always phony and bogus? They're always phony and bogus. They're fake. They're counterfeit. The only throne that matters was reserved for the one who had the right to sit on it. And his name is Jesus. And so in some ways, in verse 52, Mary gives us a glimpse of the ministry of John. And then a glimpse of Jesus' earthly ministry in verse 53. Verse 52 Through God's, through John's ministry, sorry, through John the Baptist's ministry, God would bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. Remember we said John's ministry was a ministry of repentance and it was pointing people towards the reality of their sin, which would be their soon coming judgment. Repentance and judgment. It was bringing the high low and the low high. It was leveling the playing field. That's what John's ministry was doing. And then in verse 53, the or verse 53, yes, sorry, the earthly ministry of Jesus would begin, where he would amplify the ministry of John in verse 52, but then it says in fifty-three, he would fill the hungry with good things and turn the rich away empty. And as we reflect on Jesus' earthly ministry, we witness that statement happening over and over and over again. Isn't that true of Jesus' life when he was on earth? There were those who came to Jesus recognizing their need, and they were satisfied. If you look at Jesus' earthly ministry, when people came to him who recognized their need, they walked away satisfied. Then there were some who would come to Jesus not recognizing their need, like the woman at the well, but humble enough to listen. To them he would show mercy and reveal himself, so that they too could see their need. But there were others, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that were too proud to admit that they had any need. Those, they were sent away empty. And they thought that they were rich, but truly, church, they had nothing. Nothing. Finally, Mary concludes her song of praise in verses 54 and 55, and she reflects on the Lord's patience and tender mercy that he has helped Israel, his servant. Isn't it true that God bore with great patience the sins of the nation so that in his perfect timing, according to his perfect plan, he might remember and consummate his covenant promises to them? The promises that went all the way back to Adam and Eve, but were most clearly realized in God's covenant With Abraham. And what I love most about these final two stanzas of Mary's song is that she places Israel in their proper position as what? A servant of God. Israel was God's servant. A servant performs the will of their master in order that the master might accomplish his plans and purposes through their service. Israel was the chosen nation. Mary was the chosen vessel, but soon the Savior would be born and He would invite the whole world to come into the service of God. And there's beautiful harmony all throughout this between the Father, the Spirit, and the Son working together, and it's great cause for us, church, to be thankful, recognizing that God is always at work. Now last week I gave you a homework assignment. I gave you two weeks to complete it so you still have another week but as you remember we talked about a song of thanksgiving reflecting back on 2019 how the Lord has worked in your life and what you're thankful for that the Lord accomplished in 2019 because we want to acknowledge that he's always working, he's always active he never stops working in our lives and I would just encourage you again as we prepare to close today and sing one final song together that you would continue to reflect how has God worked in your life in 2019? What do you have to give Him thanks for? Team, would you come and lead us in a final song? Father, as we recognize Your work in our congregation and we present two men who have been called Uh, As candidates for the position of elder, we pray now that you would guide and direct our minds, that you would indeed be our vision. We would be reflecting on the greatness of who you are, and we would uh, take this opportunity to express our gratitude for the great work that you're doing in our midst. We're so thankful for the leaders that you've given Calvary Monument Bible Church, for the great amount of time and energy that they put into serving our congregation Uh, and loving the members of our congregation. And we just pray now, Lord, that these things would be reflected in the vote that we have today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, once you complete your ballot,